Now I'm going to ask you to dream this morning. Dream God's dream for your life and dream God's dream for this world and dream God's dream for the church. Come on, let's dream again. We started there three months ago and I want to take us there one more time. But today I want to talk about God's dream for the church. We're going to look today at Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews 12, there's two parts of this passage. The first one is highly, highly reflective. Some stuff to think about. It actually uses a a mathematical term. The second part is very active. Here's what you go after passionately. Go after. I want to talk about God's dream for the church. Because He does have one. And He's got one for, for us here at Whitford. He's got a dream for what can happen here in this western side of Australia. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, when the church becomes the church. The first couple of verses, it's about a race. Now, the Bible uses a number of terms to describe, or a number of athletic terms to describe the Christian life. As a matter of fact, I thought about doing a series when I came here on athletic events paralleling the Christian life. I was so looking forward to the one on surfing. I had, had video clips and everything. I'm glad I didn't do it based on this response. Good. Um, but this one is about a race. Now, when the Bible uses this term about a, uh, the parallel with a race, we're never quite sure if they're using uh, the concept of a foot race or a chariot race. Now, for the purposes of this morning, we're going to talk about uh, a foot race because, come on, how long has it been since you've been to a good chariot race? But for some of you, at least the 60s, right? Yeah. So we're, we're going to focus on the foot race. Let's read this text. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses, let's throw aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the course marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him despised the cross, scorning its shame, and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are in this race. But I want you to notice the use of the plural you and we. Too often in the Christian life, we make references to me and my relationship with God. We make so much about us and us individually. That's not the case. It's not the case in this text. It's how we do this together. How we live out a faith together. How we run the race together. How we run the race to win together. Now notice in this text. Lay aside anything that holds you back and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, one of the fun things about preaching in old, older churches, they have the big old wood pulpits. Because those big things are hollow inside, so as a preacher, when you hammer on them, it just echoes. It's so cool. Especially when you're going to talk about sin. And preachers of old did this. I mean, they, they would hammer on that pulpit and breathe heavy, their faces would get red, and they would point their fingers and talk about sin and repentance. And you would feel bad. I'm not sure anybody really changed, but they felt really bad. I'm not going to do that. Because I looked at the audience and said, who's here? I'm willing to bet. I don't think we even have any like world-class sinners here. I mean, if you want to tell your story, stand up now and I'll listen. You go, no, seriously, I am. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hear you out. But I, I want to focus on that first part. Lay aside anything, anything that would hold you back. 
Because for most of us, or many of us at least, what's going to hold us back is not going to be huge sin. Come on, you got up to come here on Sunday. You're reasonably responsible people. What's going to hold you back is something else. So you get to listen to the, the stories of people. I've discovered that what holds many people back is either a past failure or, worse yet, a fear of failure. It's a phantom. I mean, you watch a video like this, or you're in a great service someplace, a conference, sometimes just in your own times with God, and you get really motivated and stirred and go, I'm going to do this. I'm going to run this race. I'm going to win this thing. And the enemy of your soul lets you go on for a few hours, maybe even a day. And then, come on, it happens almost every time. The enemy of your soul comes back and goes, ooh, you're really scary. Remember the last time you got really excited about this thing? Yeah, how long did that last, you loser? Does he talk that way to you, or is this just me? No, it's how he works. And you've done nothing wrong, except you've gotten terribly, terribly demotivated. And it's not even a real failure. It's a phantom. But the enemy of your soul accuses you, and you believe the sucker. No! That's why the text comes back and said, focus on Jesus. You see, every runner, from the early elementary days to national and international races. Every runner knows. You never look behind you to see what's going on. You don't need to know how close somebody is. You don't look to either your right or your left. Because you have a chance of losing stride that way. You always look straight ahead. You look at where you're going. God knew that when he said, set your eyes on Jesus. I love this text. Notice, you set your eyes on Jesus and don't let anything else get in the way. Especially those things that will hinder you and hold you back. Now, I've been here long enough with you to realize that you've realized I'm not much, I don't have much of a literary flair. I've not quoted any poetry to you yet. Preachers always quote poetry, at least the good old ones did. My favorite poet is Muhammad Ali, um, better known for boxing than poetry, but he does have a book of poetry published by Oxford Press. That's fairly impressive. But I'll give you my favorite poem of all time. It fits in here. Across the fields of yesterday, he sometimes comes to me. The little lad just back from play. The lad I used to be. Then he smiles so wistfully once he's crept within. I wonder if he hopes to see the man I might have been. Do not let anything, anything hold you back. You've got this one great shot to run this race and win. Keep focused on Jesus. Notice one more thing in this text. He said, run the race marked out for us. In the Christian life, there can be no comparisons. It's your race. It's not somebody else's. You don't want to run my race. Do not look at anybody else's life and compare don't look at anybody else's life and wish you had it for your own. There's always a good side and a dark side to everything. Don't focus on anybody else, with, and especially no comparisons. You run your own race and run it in such a way that you win. second part of this passage starts in verse 3. When the church becomes a church, we not only run the race to win, but we consider what's really important. Verse 3 starts with the word consider. In its original 
language form, it was the word calculate. It's a mathematics term. Calculate. Really think through all the implications of faith. If you're going to run this race in a way that you win, you've got to think this thing through. Otherwise, you lose momentum along the way. The text says, consider him. Consider Christ, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. Think through all the implications. Who Christ is, what he's done, who he is, what he means to you in your life. All the resources that are at your disposal. From, from the first chapter of Ephesians, all of what it means to be in Christ. Discover all of that position in Christ. But also notice his purpose. I love this text. End of verse 3. So that you won't grow weary and lose heart. You see, God understands our human experience so well. He knows that we get excited and motivated. We're going to do something. We're going to do something well. Only to somehow get distracted and slow down at times and lose heart. Across the savanna plains of East Africa is one of the fastest animals on the planet. It's the cheetah. The cheetah has speeds of up to, I think it's a hundred, a little over 107 or 120 kilometers an hour. This thing is terribly fast. But inside that long, slender body is a disproportionately small heart. And it'll take off trying to catch its prey. But if it doesn't catch it in the first flurry of activity, it has to stop and go lie under a shade tree for the rest of the day and catch up. Because its heart is too small to carry its body very far. Perfect picture of what the text is saying to us. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. Otherwise, you grow weary and you lose heart. At verse 5, there becomes a completely different tone change in the text. It gets tougher. We're not just to consider him and his purposes, but to consider his discipline. Listen to verse 5. Have you forgotten the words of encouragement that are addressed as you as sons and daughters of God? My child, don't take lightly the Lord's discipline, nor lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines all those that he loves, and he punishes everyone that he accepts as his daughter or his son. So endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as his own. Verse 9, Moreover, we all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? God disciplined us for a little while as seemed best. Excuse me, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as seemed best. But God disciplines us for our own good. His purposes. So consider Him. Consider His Discipline. Consider his perspective. One of the things that happens to us when we go through life's toughest moments is we're never quite sure, is this the discipline of God? Is this just an event that happened? Did I make another bad choice? Did somebody else make a bad choice and I'm paying for it now? As I get to see the church in its wide scope out there, one of the things that just shake my head at often and go, well, What's wrong with people? Is that when somebody's going through their toughest moments in life, in the church, often we want them to analyze how they got there. We ask questions like, what's wrong? What happened? What did you do? Is God punishing you? Come on. When you go through life's toughest moments, it just hurts. You can't be objective. 
And we shouldn't ask people to be that way. When the church becomes the church, we're just there for each other. Praying, discerning, getting each other through these. If it is the Lord's discipline, then let's acknowledge that and deal with it. But if not, let's just get people through it. Teach young ministry students all the time. But Jesus had what we call a ministry of presence. When people were going through whatever issues it was in life, Jesus would just show up and be with them. You don't find Jesus entering those situations and go, you need me, don't you? You did something wrong, didn't you? No! Jesus didn't do that. He just came to be with them. His presence brought hope and healing. Notice the end of verse 10. God disciplines us for our good that we might share in His holiness. On my final Sunday with you, I want to make a huge, dramatic, prophetic statement. I know God's will for all of you. I know God's will for Whitford Church. I know God's will for the future of you, your life, your families, and especially this church. I know that. It's right here. You see, the dream of God is that you have spent time with Him in such a way that you so reflect His nature, His character. That when people are around you, they know you've been with Him. Because there's something so striking about your character. And they sometimes can't figure it out. But when they're around you, they go, you're different. Sometimes they even say, you're weird. But, but weird in a unique way, they go, but it's something pretty interesting. You remind me of someone. I can't quite put my finger on it yet, but you remind me of someone. And after a while they go, oh yeah, it's him. It's him. You see, that is God's dream for each of our lives. That we're so connected to the Father that when people have been with us, they notice. Not just that we're different, We've taken on His nature, His character. Just another moment to reflect on Alpha. It's one of the greatest things out there because those of you who don't even, aren't good at conversations, say, I'm not an evangelist at all. Don't have to be. You just have to be willing to say to somebody, "Come, come with me. And they've watched you. Come on, they've watched you. They may not like it, but they've watched. And eventually they will see that striking resemblance between you and the Father. Now when the church becomes the church, it runs the race to win. It really considers in a calculating way what's really important. And finally, in verses 14 to 17, you pursue what matters most. Verse 14 begins with make every effort. I'm going to stop and apologize for just a minute. Your NIVs, the New International Version, translation of this, somehow goes soft here. It's really wimpy. It's really just one word. Pursue. If you like two words, go after. They said, make every effort. Come on. No, it's a lot tougher than that. Here's what we're to go after in faith. Go after peace with all people and holiness. Because without it, no one shall see the Lord. Pursue peace. You see, each of us are to be agents of God's grace and God's peace. The church, Whitford Church, is to be a place of God's grace and God's peace. That is his dream. 
And I don't know if you know this, but sometimes, sometimes, it's hard to find peace in God's house. Because really nice people have really strong opinions. And they equate that their opinion is equal to God's opinion. Where that came from, I have no idea. But people actually think that. I, I want this, therefore God wants this. And that's how it is. And so there's sometimes conflict. As a church consultant in the years past, I've gotten called into these. I'll just give you one. It was about 18 years ago. It was the Western Prairies of Canada. It's a town of less than 10,000. It was one of those places that God was really blessing in a unique way. I mean, his hand just sort of rested upon the people. Their church had gone from 250 to 750 in two and a half years. The year before, they had actually baptized 350 new people. It was just one of those places that God was using. But the conflict was high because part of what was happening was it was a new change. It was an era of worship and transitions and stuff. It was an older church. They had a big cross in the front. And part of the new worship style was there was a set of drums front and center. Right under the cross. Should never be there. And uh, this was just causing huge conflict. And so we went into work on a number of things. The drums just kept coming up. I said, fine, tomorrow we'll move them off to the side. So they're not an issue anymore. Let's deal with the other stuff, the real stuff. So we had a great Sunday service. Some 25 people, new people, made professions of faith that day. It was just, God's hand was just there on this place and the people. Then we had a luncheon, a debriefing luncheon, a meeting afterwards. And as we uh, talked this through, I said, okay, since drums were a big issue yesterday, let's talk about it. What was it like having the drums at the side? Well, several people thought that was a good idea. But there was one problem. There was a well-intentioned church person who come in early, and they actually took plants and put them all around the drums, trying to disguise them. And so someone said, got to get rid of those plants, though. Reminds me of jungle music. <laughs> well, how, how do you come up with this stuff? And someone else said, I think we should move the drums back under the cross because there they're most easily sanctified. Going, who, who makes this up? Like, what kind of warped mind do you have to have that this makes sense to you? And someone who did who didn't even raise their hand in the back. They just said, what do you think God thinks of this? So I'll tell you what God thinks of this since you asked. I think God's up there scratching his head going, I created the whole universe? I've never thought of these things. <laughs> I think he's up there going, I'm doing my mission in your town and in your church. I'm drawing people. I'm taking them out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the light. People's families are being changed for generations. That's what I'm doing here. And you're like biting at each other and cutting each other about drums and where they go. I said, look, I was just thinking, I don't know if you've read your Bible lately, but it says like, praise the Lord in the Psalms with all sorts of instruments, including crashing cymbals. I wasn't about to bring up dancing. And I said, you know what else God thinks since you ask? He's thinking, you so missed the point. It's about how you treat each other, and right now you are failing miserably. This is the first time I'd ever said this publicly. I said, somehow we have to learn that in the kingdom, you matter. You really matter your opinion doesn't matter at all. 
And people of wisdom learn that, and they keep their mouths shut. That's how it is. In the kingdom, because I said, if you notice, around the world, if people are having troubles with their church, it's almost never about God. It's almost always about the people or something they don't like. You matter in the kingdom, but your opinion doesn't. Now, I don't know why I even gave you that illustration. Like, that's a Western Canadian thing. Nobody in Western Australia needs to hear this. So, forgive me, I just I wasted your time. Pursue peace. Pursue holiness. Holiness, we've just never figured this one out because we do the human thing the same way the Jews did it in the Old Testament. In order to be holy, we create standards for people and give them legalistic boundaries about what you wear and don't wear and every other such things. It was just about eight or nine years ago, I decided every place I went that year, I was going to do sermons on holiness. Because I was someplace and somebody said, no one preaches on holiness anymore. And I went, I, I do. And at the time, I had a ponytail and stuff. And, and someone said to me, yeah, but somebody who looks like you shouldn't preach on holiness. I mean, an old carnal part of me said, somebody who looks like you, you shouldn't be allowed to do a number of things, but we're not going to go there. Um, <laughs> but that just reinforced, that reinforced that if you don't have a right haircut or you have a particular, I mean, God forbid, a tattoo. I mean, fortunately, I didn't show them. Um, <laughs> but those were standards of holiness. No, no, it's not those standards. It's heart stuff. It's the heart stuff. And it's that kind of character that reflects back on God and what He uses to draw people to Him. So do, get good haircuts, smell good, but don't make that holiness. Please. Please. One more thing to pursue. Pursue wholeness. Look at verse 15 if you have a Bible. Now, in my time here, I've tried very hard to not sound like a professor. I think I've succeeded relatively well. As a matter of fact, I've had a number of comments of how common my communication style is, which means I'm not very impressive. I'm, I know how to translate these. I work really hard to sound common. But I want to sound like a professor for just about 30 seconds. Verse 15. What you have here, it's the same word for the, for the term bishop or overseer, but instead of having the noun form, you've got the verb form. Here's what this text literally says in verse 15. Watch over one another. Watch over one another. So that no one, absolutely no one, will miss the grace of God. From the youngest to the oldest. Boys, girls, women, men. Very young, very old. Very poor, very wealthy. Very attractive, very not. No matter who you are, what you've done, you will never miss the kingdom of God at Whitford Church. The grace of God will flow from its people. That's the dream of God here, folks. Watch over one another in such a way that no one, absolutely no one, will ever miss the grace of God who passes by your way. That's when the church becomes a church God dreamed it to be. I promise. So let's wrap this up. When the church becomes a church, we run, we calculate, we pursue. 
When the church becomes a church, it will focus its eyes on Jesus. It will run the race to win. It will accept and discern God's discipline for each other together. And it will pursue peace and holiness and wholeness. I want you to come with me. It was almost 20 years ago now. It was the Special Olympics. Special Olympics are held every year someplace in the world. It's one of those great things that celebrates the human spirit, the triumph of human spirit. It's taking people who have big challenges in life, typically developmental handicaps, and gives them a chance to participate on a large international scale. The year that I'm going to tell you about the Olympics, the Special Olympics were held that year at Mankato State University in Minnesota, north central United States. It was near the end of the day. And two young boys with cerebral palsy lined up to run the 400-meter dash. Now think about it. Cerebral palsy, 400 meters. Tough. But that was the finals, and they had two boys who could do it. As they lined up, the crowd paid very little attention. As a message came over the loudspeaker, runners to your mark, get set. The gun went off, and it blared, go. The crowd paid very little attention, except there was one of the coaches who was just a wild man. Annoying, but a wild man. He just kept yelling at his runner. Come on, Joey, you can win. Come on, you can beat this kid. He, he forgot that the purpose of Special Olympics was not to humiliate your opponent. <clears throat> but that's what he was about. He wanted Joey to, to beat this kid in a dramatic, dramatic way. He was yelling at the top of his lungs completely. Come on, Joey, you can win. You can beat this kid. As the race got underway, they got to the first turn. And Joey had a lead over the other kid by some 15 or more meters. By the time he got to the, the back side of the track, the once quiet crowd had begun to join in. They started a slow chance that grew. Joey, Joey, Joey. The man who was reporting this for Time Magazine said when he started watching this race, he remembered thinking to himself, that he actually said a prayer. He said, I thank you, I'm not like these boys. But he said he got sort of caught up in this, and the, the crowd was chanting, Joey, Joey. He said, by the time Joey got to the final turn, he had what sports writers call a commanding lead of some 35 meters over the other kid. 25 meters from the finish line, Joey stopped and just stood there. Just stood there. The coach went wild. He's going, Joey, keep running. Come on. You can win. You can beat this kid. Come on. He got beside him and was going like this. He knew he couldn't touch him or both would be disqualified. But he tried everything to get Joey going. The writer said, Joey just looked at the coach and gave him a big smile. And then he turned to the crowd and he waved. <laughs> and then he turned back, looking down the track at the other runner. The crowd got very quiet. And after several seconds, he said, you, you could hear Joey's voice. He said, come on, buddy, come on. He said, it's as if that runner picked up his speed and pace and he ran like he hadn't run all day. And as the gap narrowed, Joey reached out his hand and they went across the finish line together. And the crowd went wild. The coach could be heard muttering to himself, at a boy, Joey, you're a real winner. The writer for Time Magazine who had earlier prayed and thanked God that he wasn't like these boys, said he said one more prayer. He said, God, will you make me more like Joey? Folks, Christ has run and he has won the race.
he is saying to every one of us today, come on, run with me. Put your hand in mine and we will run this thing together and we will win. But you have two hands. With that other hand, he wants you to reach back. Whether it's a neighbor across the street who's not in the kingdom yet, or whether it's somebody in the church who's just a little further back. Saying, come on, run with me and let's do this together. That's when the church becomes the church God dreams it would be. Pray with me, please. Lord, this is your dream for Whitford Church. You have used this place significantly in the past. I know, I know you want to use it in the future. Show them what it's like to watch over one another in such a way that no one misses the grace of God. Show them what it's like to fix their eyes on Jesus and run to win. Lord, I look forward to coming back sometime and hearing the stories of what's happened at Whitford Church. We want to celebrate your presence among us in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't we thank Martin?